All right, what's happening? Welcome to the first ever Truth is Dumb podcast with your host, me, Adam Crochet. Today, my guest is Bill Richards, a local bass player in New Orleans and a good friend of mine. Uh, I promise the next podcast I will talk more clearly. Uh, I'm going to talk to Bill again another time coming up to ask him all the questions that I didn't ask him this time. So send in your questions that I didn't answer or didn't ask, and uh, we'll clear those things up for you the next time. Uh, there was also, what else do I need to warn you about? Oh yeah, we did a word association that I should have clipped out, but I didn't. So anyway, enjoy the podcast, people. Alright, <laughs> right, I'm sitting here with uh, Bill Richards. Full disclosure, Bill Richards is a good friend of mine from uh, as long as I can remember. Uh, the man is a bass player here in New Orleans, uh, play a lot of groups, uh, play some of uh, groups I've played with, several of them. Uh, guy I had heard about before I ever met the dude, and uh, a guy I'm proud to call one of my friends. Welcome, Bill Richards. Hey. Bill Richards here on the podcast. Welcome, Internet. The Internet people who are listening to us on the podcast. Anybody, this podcast, look, all right, first of all. Well, let's get right to it, Bill. Uh, you're not a dumb person. Uh, man, it ain't easy to make it in this business, even uh, just to, to say, yeah, look, I'm a musician. Right? Yes. It's not easy to do that, just like you know, any kind of artist, it's not easy to do. Uh, in my estimation, you're not dumb. What? Why don't you do something else where you make a lot more money? Uh, I was going to do something else to make more money. I almost became an accountant. Oh, I remember that. But... Uh, when I, the closer I became to becoming an accountant, I started to panic and realized that I would rather just do something that I'm happy doing every day, and uh, I don't need that much money. Now, wait a minute. When you say, when you say, okay, for all the back here, you were a musician. Were you doing okay? I was doing okay. So, the story was I... I at this point, what you, who are you playing with at this point? Were you playing Russell Batiste at this point? No. So, let's go back. It's 2003. I wasn't really... I was just starting to freelance. I just met you, actually. I was playing with you. I was just f- done playing with Afro Skull, which was a band that I helped start. When you were in college? When I was... Yeah, when I was, like, in college and just after college, towards the end of college. And then, uh... <clears throat> and then I was... Realized I wasn't playing professionally, and I was just working delivery jobs, and I decided to go back to school to be an accountant, to do something legitimate. Now, wait a minute, first and of then, all, and then, oh, a lot of people, they, they're going to, they do that, though, for a long time, right? I know yeah. guys 50 years old right now, they're doing the same delivery jobs that you were talking about. Right. And playing music. Right. Just because that's the thing, you do this, you do that, you make it happen. Right. But you want more for yourself. I think so. Right. I think I want to do more for myself. Of course, right? Uh, it was, it was, well, let's see. I was also, uh, at the same time, I was working part-time as a booking agent because I had booking experience from booking my own band. So I was working uh, part-time for Rabidash Records. Which is how I met you. That's, that's... We can tell that story later. I don't think that's how I met you. It is how we met you. I'll tell you how I met you. But then, uh, and then, through that, I met uh, a singer uh, who they, who... Uh, John Otan, who owns Rabidash Record, wanted me to think about booking. 
And instead of booking her, I ended up playing bass with her. And through her, I met Chris Davis. Drummer? The tr- drummer, Chris Davis. Oh, yeah, great drummer. Yeah, great drummer. And, uh, He'll be on the podcast, hopefully. And he was the first guy to actually encourage me to be a professional musician. He said you should try this professionally. And then, a few weeks later, he had a chance to get a full-time or uh, a four-day-a-week gig on Bourbon Street, and he recommended me. And uh, so at the same time I started school for accounting, I also started this part-time job playing music full-time. And then that's... And then I... And then so I was spending a couple of years deciding, you know, I was, thought I was going to be an accountant, but then when I finished school for that, I realized I liked playing music and I didn't want to stop, and it was enjoyable. So while you're going back to school... Yeah. To get your accounting degree, you're also working. I'm also working part time as a musician. As a musician, it was concurrent, but you were on the track. You're putting down all the things. And Chris Davis, he was a professional musician at the time already. Yes, he was working, and uh, I think he, you know, he knew that I was a, at least willing to do the homework, you know, which it, which it turns out is important. This is ten years ago. This is a, a fifteen tw- years, ago. twelve years ago, twelve years ago, twelve years ago, and so. Uh, he gave me the chance, you know, I got the chance to audition for the band. They gave me a list of like a hundred songs to learn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I learned those songs and then I got the gig. And that's how many of those songs did you end up playing? I still probably on play first gig, on the first gig. On the first gig? Yeah. I don't know. Probably 30 or 40, I guess. Uh, 30 or 40 out of a hundred? No, actually, I think in a five, yep, yeah, maybe closer to, let's see, in a five set thing, you do probably, probably about 50. Did you eventually play all of those songs? At some point. And then, With and that then, man? With that band at some point, I think. And then, uh, and then as you, you know, then you start playing with other bands on, on Berber Street, you just learn a bunch of covers. That's kind of how it goes. And then. What's the most number, you saw what I was getting at before, what's the most number of songs you ever learned for a band? And then the least of those that you actually played? Oh, man. But what'll happen, well, in my experience, somebody will give you eight CDs of original material. Right. And you'll go, oh, wow, they each have a specific line on there that I need to know. And you learn them all. Right. And then you show up and they just do a bunch of cover songs. Ah, I did that. I think... You don't have to name names if you don't want to. I did a gig with a guy. Or if you do, you go right in. I don't... It's probably not wise to name names. Although, I, I have nothing to say bad, bad about this guy. He's a, he's a great... He's a great guy. I would say he's a, he's a He's a blues man. He plays an instrument. He plays an instrument. He's got six strings. And, uh, he hired me to do a gig and I was, I was a sub and, uh, but it was a, it was like a, it was the first time I was playing with this guy, but I knew that in the future I would like to sub with this guy. So I decided to chart out all his tunes, like write them all out Mm -hmm. so that I knew that I wouldn't probably be subbing with a lot, but if I ever got the chance again, that I would have all the music ready. Right. Easier. Uh, Really? So in a sense it's easier, but, uh, in the long run, in the long, in the long run, it's really better to just memorize everything. But if you're only going to do a gig once a year, it's better to have, you know, a reference. A reference. It's just... So, uh, I, I write all this stuff down, and I get to the gig. We play a few of the tunes, but I'd say like 75% of the gig was just blues covers. And uh, I was okay with that, because, you know, no one wants to be sitting there just trying to read, the, just like read their own charts, necessarily. Uh, and so the gig went fine, and... Uh, you know, I think he was happy with me, but I never got hired again. So I still have his charts, just in case. That was like three years ago. So. It's a tricky thing, you know, to, um, <clears throat> in what you say about looking at your charts, 
you want everybody to have a good time, and you also want to put your best foot forward. If uh, you don't, as a as the guy's calling the songs, you don't necessarily want to call uh, something everybody in the audience has heard all the time. They think you're just doing nothing, but you don't want to put everybody on the spot. It's tricky to find everybody's uh, ability. It is. I think he probably was more comfortable with just calling covers at the time. You know, I think that it's he was trying to accommodate accommodate the sub. You know, he didn't realize you have good ears. What is the um? Which is one of the things that I, why I've uh, worked with you for so long because you picked up the stuff so quick. Uh, what is the uh? Talking here with Bill Richards. But can I go back before we tell uh, tell the story of how we met? I guess which was relevant since we mentioned it. Yeah, I just want to mention um bands that you you play with Colin Lake right yes, now. I play with Colin Lake. You play with me, Adam Crochet. You. Uh, you're doing a gig with the Jerk Officers. I'm doing a gig with. I'm excited true. about that. That stuff happens. Who else do you I play, play with? with? Russell Batiste. Russell Batiste. Uh, funkiest drummer in the world, according to some expert opinions. And The uh, funkiest drummer in the world, right? But when you really hear it in person, right, it's something different. It is something different. And it's hard to, you know, every. I mean, the opinions that I trust are expert opinions, but they're still opinions. How do you put that sucker in a book, right? How do you put him in a book? You couldn't put it in a book. You no. couldn't describe what he's doing in a book. Not and, and unless you want to get really super nerdy about it, and then it's just annoying. You would know, you yeah. know, those people people who could understand how to read that wouldn't be able to feel it, maybe necessarily. Yeah. yeah. But then also, uh, uh, why why bother putting a book? You put a DVD with the book. <laughs> you just have to show examples. Nowadays, you find it right on YouTube. Does he have a thing anyway? So I'm playing with him. I do yeah. a who else he put? Well, my uh, I play a lot. I play, I have a regular gig on Bourbon Street four days a week. Bourbon Street, New Orleans. Bourbon Street, New Orleans at the famous door. I'm there four days a week, uh, pay the bills. Vocational gig. It's a vocational gig. It's a, it's kind of like a blue collar, kind of like you're a, a human jukebox sort of thing. Like what the Beatles did before they hit it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Except with less, less, uh, less speed. Less speed. Yeah. yeah they, <laughs> they took a lot of speed when they did those gigs, but. Right. Now but they're doing flat a full 10 hour. They were doing a ridiculous amount of work. Yeah. And they were young. And, and they had less material to work with. I mean, look, they were right. just, we have all this, we have all decades of material. They were working with like relatively small amount of material. And then, so they had to come up with stuff. Still had to please the people. Yeah. With that same skiffle <laughs> music. The skiffle and, and blues. Well, so, uh, you also, you were the one who got me my first gig with, uh, Big Chief Monk Boudreaux. Which led to me playing with the Wild Magnolias. Yeah. So you were a Wild Magnolia for many years. Sort of. Well, I was only, yeah, a few years. I remember, yeah, I think first we got the, yeah, we got that. I got you that gig. You were a Wild Magnolia before I was a Wild I was, Magnolia. Yeah, for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but I was excited to get you on that. I knew you'd thrive. That was a good gig. And it was, uh, you know, you knew, of course, I love uh, Snooks Eaglin, June. Mm-hmm. These all these guys that uh, held that seat before, and uh, I never, I never even. I guess when you were playing with them, it didn't even really register with me. But when you think about some, you go like, "Oh, that's a that's a good band." I wonder if ever they need a guy, I come sub for them, or I go play with them. You know, but you never really think you're going to play with. It's like oh, maybe I'll play with the Neville Brothers <laughs> or the Meters, because my well, my noise is kind of like that, yeah. uh, where they're like an institution from so long ago. Uh, they're also one of those bands that a lot of sidemen go through. It's like, yeah. It's like a, not really a rite of passage, but it's just something that, that, that is, that's, that's good to do if you're a New Orleans musician. 
which is super hip in New Orleans. You have that opportunity, or yeah, I mean, you could find uh, a free agent Indian and uh, go jam with him. There's those gigs pop up a lot too. Oh yeah. But man, that the Indian music as a thing, as a uh, as a way to get to 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 understand playing music that's improvised, yes. that's formless essentially. Yeah. Right. That's work. That's based in the moment. Mm-hmm. But they do a lot of things that make it easy to be in the moment. It's because we repeat this and we're going to chant this and we're going to listen to that dude, the one guy is the leader and uh, so many people involved in it, you got a lot of percussion and all that. Yes. It takes, takes a special kind of listening to be the, the band for that. You have to be really, uh, everyone has to be really in tune, really in tune to the moment and really in tune to what's going on around them and really, but also just ready for anything. So you never know. And you know, if you if you uh, if there's a book on how to play Mardi Gras Indian music, you should not even bother reading that. It's a waste of time. <laughs> no, waste of time. You know, you go straight to playing it. It's like uh, I, I learned to play it just from listening to the just from uh, just from listening to the, the OZ. You know, it was just it was on. Like to be honest with you, like when I was a, when I was younger, I would just put on the uh, when I was a delivery guy, I would put on the local show. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Uh, you're and I would about. like, and I would just try to listen for my, I was like waiting for them to play my band, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> in the, <laughs> Afro Skull. Yeah. Right? I mean, Afro-Skull. that's, I mean, so, I mean, it was that, you know, that was, I was honestly awesome just waiting that? and they would play and it would maybe, you know, a couple times a week, maybe, nice. you know, usually there was one DJ like this who played us a lot, but honestly it wasn't that much. But in the meantime, I just was listening to all this other stuff and absorbing it. And sometimes subconsciously, sometimes I really got into it, but then when I got the chance to play my first Mardi Gras Indian music, it just kind of, you just kind of understood how you do it. You just, you just, you just lock in with whatever's going around and you, you know, it's not about ego. It's about just playing. And you're talking about WWOZ, the radio station, yeah. New, Orleans, New Orleans public radio station or whatever. It's yeah. not public, was it? It's, uh, is it public? I don't yeah, know I what you want to call it. It's member funded. We play all the, right, it's member funded and all the local music gets played there and they support all the uh, local goings on. They tell you what, where to go and see what. And uh, you can find it online. WWOZ has a website, I'm sure, of some sort. And then, uh, you can nowadays, I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually go search your name, your band name, and it'll tell you how often they played you. Yeah. So you don't have to listen to it. <laughs> well, I'm glad. But I'm, I'm glad I don't have to no, do that because I, I, I would have never learned anything. I would have been stuck in, I've been stuck in my own head. I can't tell you how many times I heard a, 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 a Soul Sister, a show, an hour of that, and go, "Why don't I just play that that hour of music, those songs?" Yeah, oh, I, I, yeah. Instead of what I've been doing, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I, every time I listen to her show, I'm always thinking that someone should form a band to just play those songs all the time. The other cool thing about OZ is that you can just call them up. At the time you're talking about now, where they were playing Afro Skull, you could go, I would write a song and just go over there and say, hey, I'm, you know, you do the DJ, say, hey, I'm going to go and do a song. I just wrote this yesterday. And then, uh, you can call them up. You say, hey, what, what was that you just played two seconds ago? And they say, oh, it was this. And you say, what, do you know if that was a flugelhorn? I sounded like a flugelhorn, but I don't know. Or what was the guy saying in the third verse? And the guy just talked to you, you know, he's just a guy. Uh, or maybe he's busy. He says, I'm in the middle of this. But he, he answered the phone, you know. Uh, it's a great resource that I don't know if they have uh, as good a one most places. So, talk about uh, your, what you've done, what you've been doing, uh, some of your history. I feel like we've left a hundred million things out 
uh, you went on tour with the New Orleans Suspects. You've been, oh, so many... I, was just, I was just subbing for them. Like, I know, but it's a fun thing to do. Oh, that, was a, that, was a, that was a fun, that was fun, man. Those guys are all great players. What I think people out there, I don't know if they, if they dig, like, you know, sometimes you'll see, uh, remember when Ozzy Osbourne's bass player went to Metallica and Metallica's yeah. bass player went to Ozzy? Yes. And that kind of like, that happens locally on a smaller level, but you see, like, a guy like Anders Osborne, I remember when he switched drummers with, uh, Royal Finger Bowl. You know, Kevin O'Day and Carl Nuzio switched spots right around the same time. I don't know if it was like a, happened, you know, how it wasn't a football trade, you know? <laughs> but they, uh, so when you go, but when you get called, these, these guys go on the road and, uh, the usual bass player is a dude from the guys and then, Say, well, if he can't make it, we're going to get somebody else. He's got to be no slouch. You know what I mean? So, you know, and then for the people who really know about it, then it's really cool. They go, oh, that's Colin Lake's bass players playing with the suspects. And he's doing his thing. I like his thing the way it fits with this. Or, whatever, you know, if they get a chance to see that. I went with the, uh, that one band. That was good. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a really hip thing that, uh, to be able to see. Like when you see, I like comedians, and you see one comedian you like being interviewed by another comedian you like. You go, wow, that, how great is this? You, what opportunity would you have? That's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. Right. I want to be able to have people know what it's like. So for you to be able to go with those guys, um, well, let, let's tell them how, like, for example, those are some dudes, they all kind of live in the same area where we live here, by the Maple yeah. Leaf. Yeah, we all live in the same neighborhood. And the um, dude couldn't make it, and so why'd they call you? Uh, yeah, Reggie was sick, and... uh and I had I had met um, Reggie Scanlon. Reggie Scanlon was uh, sick at the time, and they were they needed to do like a weekend worth of gigs. And I had met C.R. Groover uh, through a gig with Billy Ayuso's band. And uh, I only did I was subbing once. Uh, it was actually when Billy Ayuso used to back up the Bo Dallas Jr. And anyway, so I think C.R. and I were on the same gig. And that's how we met. And then, uh, so I think he must have th- given them my name, mm-hmm. uh, when it came time for a sub and, uh, I was happy to fill in and, uh, you know, getting to play with those guys and me and Willie Green is always, that's always a fun experience as a bass player. Uh, me and Willie Green, the longtime Neville Brothers drummer. Yeah. The longtime Neville Brothers Force drummer. Of nature. And now Force of Nature and now time, now uh full-time New Orleans Suspects drummer. As a bass player around town, especially as someone who's not from here, it's a great pleasure to play with uh, with just New Orleans local drummers and their their greatest drummers and their funkiest drummers. It's it's you know part of the reason what I why I do what I do, and it's uh, the feeling that you get when you play with those guys. Just the it, it's uh, unmatchable. Like, do you take time to reflect on this? I know it's. You know, on the other hand, right, you know, uh, we, uh, you still, you go, you work your day job, right? You know, nobody's, uh, nobody's fanning you with no palm fronds. Right. Uh, there's no, uh, you don't have, uh, the full studio and in, in the shed and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. We're still working. But do you take time to reflect in that spot? Cause you gotta be hungry. Yeah. But to reflect on how the, uh, that you got to play with Willie Green, you got to play with Doug Belote, you got to play with, uh, Russell Baptiste and Green and uh, Baptiste, these are like old school, uh, legendary New Orleans drummers. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think of other guys that you've had the chance to play with. There's so many of them. Yeah, I, yeah I've uh, another, I, I, play, I used to do a few 
got to do some gigs with Eddie Christmas, who's Eddie just Christmas. one of just uh, really a, a very musical, very funky. Uh, Eric Boulevard, the Eric Boulevard. Oh my God, I can't Transport. forget about him. He's he's uh, he's just uh, all these guys. They're just so amazing to play with, and they all give you something different. You know, right now I'm playing with Mike Barris, Amanda Shaw's drummer, uh, and Mike Sollers who plays with Gail Holiday. Uh, I get to play with these guys on a regular basis on Bourbon Street. It's just like all these great drummers, and they all they all present uh, a different interpretation, and I get to experience all of it. And it's, uh, it's amazing. It'd be like if you were a singer, right? Yeah. Back in the day, in uh, where uh, where the Yardbirds were at, you know, and then you got to. You got you had Jimmy Page play guitar with you while you were singing, and then also uh, you got to do it with Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton. But not just those guys, but then a bunch of dudes who are like just as good, or if not better, at their own thing, who nobody ever heard of because of circumstances or luck or whatever the hell. You know, it was these things. So many great musicians out there, yeah. and the, I don't think that we know of a singer who got to do something like that. You know what I mean? But you as a bass player, we have to do that with these drummers. And I think that that's, you know, it's one of the reasons we're here in New Orleans. Yeah. Because uh, so many great musicians everywhere you turn. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that's boring. I'm getting boring right now. So let me ask you this. All right. If you, uh, we talked about some of the great things you did. Do you have anything that stands out where you think about if you're going through like your gratefulnesses and you think about like, wow, that's something, I can't believe I got to do that. It stands out as like a, pinnacle or one of your pinnacle things <clears throat> of happiness where you look back and you go like, wow, I always can be happy when I remember the time that I did that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. They're just so, you know, they're like so many little moments. I think I, I don't think I've had that. I've had that moment yet where I don't know. It's like every, you know, you just had like, you, when you have a good gig, it's a great feeling, and it, it's like, uh, like it, it's like all those little moments are the end all, be all moment, and that's you know, that's why that's why that's why you know I'd rather do this than be a job, have a job where I'm rich, because it's like you get to experience this kind of thing on a daily basis, and I don't think, and I haven't had any, um, you know, I haven't done the a, a stadium sized gig or anything where you're get that sort of energy, I guess. So I haven't had that moment, you know. You played big festivals. I felt, yeah, I played big festivals and, you know, maybe, you know, a few thousand people at, you know, at most at one time. Um, and then, you know, the occasional packed theater and it's like, but it's like all those moments are great for different reasons. You know, I've had moments that were embarrassing, but in retrospect, they were amazing, amazing embarrassing moments. You know, and it's like that. That is a, that. Huh? Huh? Do you have one in mind? Yes, I have one in mind. Uh, so back my first when I my first band I was in was the Flavor Kings, and I played trumpet. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we had a gig at the House of Blues opening up for the time Morris Day at the time. This is like late nineties New Orleans. Yeah. The late '90s, the Flavor Kings last were around in existence. I think from '95 to '98, I think, and I was in there till '97. So we had a gig opening up the House Blues, packed house, and uh, <laughs> who we opening for again? More Stay in the Time, which okay. was the you know the band uh, 
from uh, now I forget the name of the movie. Um, Purple Rain. Okay. You know, they they were big in the big in the in the mid to late eighties and still really popular. I mean, you notice um, I didn't jump in with any trivia answers there. I had, I had nothing. <laughs> and anyway, so it's a packed house, and I am at the time I was kind of I was probably dressed pretty funny because I was borrowing someone's jacket. I think I was like pretty overweight, and I probably didn't realize how funny I looked. And anyway, I had this one part of the show where I come out and I <laughs> and I have a rap. <laughs> I did. I wrote a rap, and uh, so I'm out there and I'm looking at this crowd and I'm just like, "Oh man, this is." I'm thinking in my head, "This is going to be like really embarrassing because I didn't think my rap was like worthy of like this this crowd that was experiencing." You know, it was. I had I was having a bit of self confidence issues, but I knew I just had to do it. So I got there and I kind of closed my eyes and I'm doing my rap. And I, this lady in the front row is laughing, as like all I can hear is just ha ha, like just can't get enough of how silly I look and how probably silly I possibly sound. But I just plowed through it, you know. It didn't last that long, you know. It was maybe a minute, and I finished. And I'd say about half the crowd afterward was like cheering for me like and so and I didn't really care about the other half I was just like if you just plow through the moment and just present yourself people will appreciate what you do at least even if what I did was crappy I don't even know maybe it was cool maybe it was crappy but I think it was just the the fact that I went out there and people saw that I was just like out there even when those people were laughing at me in the front just line. were down just just for trying just for getting down and, and having the guts to go out there you know in a in a place where I just was not, I just had never been in that front of that size crowd, you know, and it was, uh, it was, and in the end we had a great show. And when I went in that crowd, people were complimenting the band and it was just, it felt good. And so that's, I think that was the first time where I, where being on stage really had a major impact on just, on just, uh, on self-confidence and everything. I mean, I played, played gigs before that, but, um, this was the first time I felt really exposed. And, you know, I've had those moments now when I have to do like a big bass solo in front of a crowd and I'm really <laughs> not a bass soloist, but I just, you just plow through it and mm -hmm. just do your best. And next time you do better. You're also like a very uh, humble, sort of like, you know, um, in this here music game, right? It's a, a, there are a lot of different things that draw people to it. Because on one hand, you perform, uh, you can record. So when you're recording stuff, you you leave a legacy, like being a writer or something. You perform, though, you get in front of people, and there's the attention aspect of it. And uh, you, you to me, have never been a person who seemed like they needed a lot of attention. Uh, it's not like he, oh, he's desperate for attention. But uh, it might have been you that said something to me about that if uh, everybody, everybody who is a musician who learned to be a musician when they were young, has some sort of issue between them and people, because otherwise they wouldn't have started playing the instrument, you know? I know for myself, I was playing the guitar, I said, well, maybe uh, if the people like me by virtue, they see that I do this thing, and I go, that guy's cool, that I could be cool without having to go to one by one of these people and explain to them that up to now they're wrong, you know? Because <laughs> they all, you know? So I... Uh, you think you could win over unpopularity or whatever. So like if I knew how to talk to people, I wouldn't be at home 
practicing the guitar. Be <laughs> out there, hanging, you know, you're 10 years old. You should be out there trying to figure out how to talk to a lady, you know? Friendly. Maybe you're even talking to a lady. I'm not saying 10, but you know what I'm saying? At a certain point, you, you, you go, wow, I'm starting to get good at this guitar. Well, we'll think all the things you could have been good at socially, but weren't. So I think there's that, that component with, uh, some people, they need the attention, but they would demand it in any social situation at all. Whereas other musicians, they want to uh, be intimate with people, but the way that they choose to do it is by exposing themselves through their music, honest, artistic expression, and then allow the people to set, to go like, oh, I like that. You go, oh yeah, well then you would probably want to hear more. Well, there are plenty of musicians who don't like to play live. That's true, too. Yeah, they just want to either just record, or I know great musicians who just would rather have another career because they don't want to gig for a living. Yeah. Some guys don't like to perform. They don't like to perform. They just want to play music for music's sake. I think, you know... Or they just want to write songs. They just want to write songs. I think... Uh, Some people never write any songs. <laughs> right? You do all the things. I do. I, I write some. I'm writing some. I used to write a lot more, but now that as a sideman, I'm playing everyone else's music. Um... I just find it, I just, you know, it's a matter of time. You, if you want to write music, you have to treat it like you're playing and practicing an instrument. You have to sit down and do it. And I spend my time learning a lot of other people's music and neglecting my own. So, uh, although I'm starting to work on my own, I've been, I've been setting goals. I've actually been writing past couple of nights, just come up with new things just to. But I think it gives you an advantage if you've already been, um, a band leader and a songwriter and a front mass singer and all these things. So that, like you say, well, I need a co-pilot, right? Side man, you want a guy who could be the pilot, you know? So it happens with me, this guy's going to just, you know, fly the plane. So I think that when you, uh, if you deal with, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of great bass players who don't sing or never did that. But if you understand what it's like to be in the front with that microphone and to, to live and die on with the people behind you, whether they support you or not, uh, and, you know, you got to understand the other side of it, too. Uh, if you're going to be that guy, you know, you should back people up and know what it's like to to have somebody, you know, barking orders at you and how to do it the right way and how to do yeah. it, you know? I mean, I think it's it's a good experience for every every musician to just sing a song in front of a crowd because it, it is a lot different because you can't really hide behind anything. You can't hide behind electricity. You can't hide behind, you know, drum kit uh, but it but it's also uh, you know when it goes well it's a really pleasurable experience it took me a while of singing before I really really got into it uh, you know before I was able to start just taking in the meaning of songs at first I had to do it because essentially as a band on the, on the Bourbon Street we needed someone to sing some songs so I just did it but then I started finding songs that I liked and was able to be able to express the emotion to those songs. And that, you know, but, uh, but at least someone, I think it, it's a good, it's a good experience for people. Do it just, one time. To just do it, just do it once or have some song that you like to sing that you sing every few gigs, depending on your situation or whatever. Um, I played a gig the other day. Uh, it was a trio. And the drummer, it was me and the keyboard player were singing, and the drummer had never sung a song. We said, oh, you could, you know, why don't you just do one? And then he thought about it for a while, and he was like, oh, I could sing some standard, you know, some jazz standard. He said, uh, 
so we started setting it up like we were going to do it. And then he didn't realize, and he was just kind of thinking about it. And then we go, all right, go ahead. And he said, oh, no, 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 I wasn't serious. I wasn't serious. I wasn't serious. I wasn't serious. I said, well, you, you're serious now. We're ready. Do it. You know, we're, we're all ready to do it, and that's what we're going to do. And then he uh, he ate his balls. He did bad. It was like, it was, uh, he sang it bad, and he was, you know, being in the right key is very important. And if you're not there, if you're not in the right, if you don't have a key that's close to okay for you, man, you're out of luck. You you might as well, you know what I mean? You might as well be trying to ski in without no skis. So he, uh, I don't know what that meant, but he, uh, I'm trying to say, first podcast, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. <laughs> so then the, uh, so he, but he, he went through the song. There was nobody there at this thing. It was like the, you know, situation that was fine for that. Next week, he got, he's out there again and he's a sub. And we're playing the regular crowd, you know? And one point he goes, hey, let me do that song again. He goes, oh, God, the one you died on. He said, but it was, the fact that he wanted to do it again was great. Yeah. He said, yeah, all right, like, absolutely we're going to do it again. You know what I mean? Because the third time will be better. The fourth time, you know, you got a singing drummer on your hands. Yeah. And he'll do it. And then he'll pick another song. And you got to get sings two songs. Right. So did you change the key to the second time? Uh, I want to say that I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the truth. Uh... That would, but that's on him, you know what I mean? A lot of times, I play with people where we, you know, we've tried to adjust the key and on the fly. Um, somebody played a restaurant, maybe a waitress or somebody comes up to sing a song and they, they, uh, they kind of know, or, you know, a lot, a lot of times happens with people who don't sing professionally is they, they hear the song in their head in the key that they hear it played all the time, but that's not the key for their voice. So when they go to sing it, they go to sing that note that they hear in their head and it's not the right note because they should be in a different key. And it's, uh, the human brain, according to that book, Your Brain on Music, is pretty adept at that, picking out the key, even if you're, uh, not studied in music theory or anything. So you sing it in this, in, at that same pitch. I think karaoke is like that. They always have a set that key, but knowing your key, I don't know how those karaoke people do it. There, but there's a method for them. Anyway, this is, you know, if there's musicians who are listening who live, anywhere besides New Orleans or in New Orleans or whatever, I think the moral of the story is uh, get in and start doing it. You know, you can practice as long as you want at home, but it doesn't help you on the stage um, very much. It's like 10,000 hours of practice on your hand. It, it, certain things, it's not 10,000 hours of playing live. It's not 10,000 hours of playing with people. It's not 10,000 hours of playing with people in a situation where you can't really hear certain things very well, like the bass or the vocals. And you don't know the songs, like those type of, those experiences that you need to have so that you can be comfortable when they invariably come up again, but in more high, you know, high pressure situations. Um, New Orleans is definitely a place where you have to fail to succeed. You know, it's like you, <laughs> Secret you, you, you could be at some point on stage, you're going to be, you're going to be in a situation where you have to just trust your instincts. That's everything. You, failure is the secret ingredient That's true. in success. That's true. That's true. But I, I think New Orleans more so you have to do it in public. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I think in, in other cities, from what I've been told, it's, you know, the, the gigs are generally, you generally know what you're going to play. And there's a lot of times there's music, you know, music involved that you can look at or whatnot. In New Orleans, you get a lot of situations where you, I have a gig tomorrow night, exact, as for example, I'm not going to say who to with, but it's a three hour gig. I've never played a gig with this person before I asked him what I should learn 
person was going to email me a list and never has. Now the gig is about 30 hours away, and I still have no idea what I'm about to play. It's going to be three hours of music. Mm -hmm. Now, normally, I think if I were <laughs> not used to that, I'd be really nervous. But I'm not nervous at all. Because I know that uh, I could probably just trust my instincts and my knowledge, and there will probably be songs that I kind of already know. Your experience. And, and if it, I don't know it, yeah, follow the drummer and the guitar player or whatever and uh, and do my best, you know? I've had some guys where they will text me and say, with, you know, if I'm leading the gig and then they, or they hire me to come in front of the gig, say, uh, hey, is there anything you want me to listen to? Can you email me something? Or is there, and I just say, no, it's all right. <laughs> uh, you'll be fine. And then they go, well, no, but I, you know, I prefer if you would send me something and then I could know what I was going to do. And then I go, well, it's three hours of music, right? And part of it's going to be improvised soloing and interaction of the band. True. So to, to prepare for that would take like years of working together True. for that to be, you know, whatever it is. And then to learn three hours worth of music going to take more than three hours. So I'm not going to email you three hours of music that, and then the other side of that is that it, uh, I'm prepared for things to not go any particular way. So I'm going to try to dive for, I'm going to try to go towards where, how I want the song to sound. But if the drummer comes in with something that's a little bit different, maybe it'll be interesting and cool. Maybe it'll aggravate me, but either way, I don't, it, you know, we couldn't go back and rehearse every one of these songs, every feel for every part, every transition, every little hit. You know, it's not going to happen. So, and that's the other thing about these vocational gigs and being in New Orleans uh, that, like you say, is different. A lot of these other bands that I hear or talk to in other towns where they're rehearsing a lot to do one half-hour slot and they want it to be perfect, um, they need it to be perfect. I, I was the other day at a rehearsal space and just jamming with some friends, you know, from my college days. And it was a punk rock rehearsal space. So they had all these punk rock bands, these metal bands, and they were like, shredding it just but they were working on it. they'd stop and go ah you fucked up a one note you know go back and fix that and so you go back and they they drive it again you know try to make it perfect and then i go man no none of these bands really play anywhere around town because around town the hipper thing is this new orleans jazz and funk and stuff but these these players are out there and they're um they're working so hard on that music and then and then you go to jazz fest and you see a local band go up there and uh, not even have a song. Just start playing. Like, the one guy starts playing a groove. The other guy starts playing a groove. They're trying to get their sound checked together. Like, once, the, once it kind of all comes together, the guy yells out a key. You know, they all kind of go to that key if they weren't already on the key. It's like, how do I watch that for 10 minutes? The one the two guys playing on different keys, you know? But that's what they're doing. And, it, and to the people who have never heard it before, you might not notice that. You know, something is different about this music. And I really like the groove. This groove is fun to me, and I'm dancing now, and so they let it go. So, but I saw, uh, you know, during Hurricane Katrina, I tell this story all the time to people when they talk about that looseness, how it's the most awesome thing in the world, you know? No, New Orleans, we just get up there and we don't give a shit. Well, I saw uh, Beck in New Jersey, and you could tell that show was worked out. They had all these songs, they were writing other parts and all parts, and it was amazing. Right. I said, man, I'd love to be a part of something like that, where we had such richness you know what i mean uh it was really amazing there are there are you know there I, are bands like that around here i mean i rehearse a lot with russell batiste we rehearse weekly oh yeah you know and he's got a band like that and we have but he you know, also we, improvises but it, you know, there's 
there's a lot of improvisation, but we're, but he rehearses us so well that he can kind of pull unexpected things on us and, and still have it worked out. But as far as his actual tunes and parts, I mean, everything is, you know, like the actual parts are worked out, but there is obviously things part times when we stretch out and improvise, but when it comes to parts, you got to be tight. But I think he, he's a good example of where it's like a combination of a tight band, but you can also stretch out and be loose. I think the bands that really, where there's not a improvisational element, where they're just tight song-oriented bands or, you know, composition-oriented bands, I think they're they're great. It's just, it's hard to find a place in this town, but then there are very few clubs where those sorts of scenes exist. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, too. It's like comedy... I see, you know, you see a guy like Seinfeld or George Carlin, and that thing is so worked out perfectly. All the words, every word, and the pause, and the time, and the pitches, and everything is so worked out. And then if they stumble or make a mistake, it's a glaring mistake. You go, oh, that guy is messed up big, you know, ruined the whole flow of everything. But then if you see one of these guys who the looseness or the sloppiness is a part of their style, you never notice any mistakes, you know, and unless they stumble in in that, unless they said, you know, and, uh, so as long as you're flowing, I guess, I didn't want to despair, you know, there's lots of bands in New Orleans who rehearse and work out all their stuff, you know, and some of those, those punk bands, you know, those, they're doing really well other places, but yeah. it's not right in town. Yeah. Oh, those are great, there's, there's some great rock bands and punk bands that actually just kind of go straight from, you know, from their, their basement to another basically on the road and don't really spend too much time in New Orleans because it's not it's not a good place to, to, to make a living for that sort of music. You know? It's also this, so now we're getting on some of this interesting, right, between the vocational gig mm-hmm. and then the uh, artistically satisfying original music, uh, original band concept, guys who are trying to work together, do a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two things are mutually exclusive at, the, at a moment, right? Um, there's not too many bands on Bourbon Street. There's no bands on Bourbon Street playing original music, like just trying to make it. Right. Um, they've got groups of guys who play together and they have the same concept for what they're doing. But uh, if you want to have a song, uh, make it in the way that people used to make it, or make it the way people make it now, or however you want to, whatever you're thinking, what you want to do with yourself, or get your music out to more people, uh, whatever it is, or just be able to travel however you want to travel. Uh, you want to go international with your music. You want to just, I've always wanted to see places. You know, people have different goals with what they want to do with their music. But uh, from here, for some people, it's, it's, there's nothing in the day to day vocational work. So then they have to somehow find a way to, uh, to rehearse. But for the people who can do both, uh, like Papa Gross Funk, right? He was a guy, he worked on Bourbon Street. Mm-hmm. And he built up not only connections, but just a knowledge and a, a wealth and base, a, a comfort on stage to where when he took out his band, made Papa Gross Funk a band, it was like, it's like, well, this is like a major level hard hitting band immediately. Right. Because he had, he had, uh, been able to do all those things. And he also had a killer rhythm section. Yeah. Who was his, who was, was his, at his first, it was, uh, no, well, his first rhythm section was Mark Pirro. Oh, yeah. Of Smile and Myron bass player, one of my favorites, and uh, Russell Batiste. Oh, and yeah, then, that uh, was the original bass And then player. Russell Batiste, uh, then that Jelly Bean joined a few years after that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was like, you know, they were doing a weekly thing at the Old Point Bar, and then they moved to the Leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and then very quickly, you know, they hit the road and, you know, did well for a while. Talking about there was a heyday at the uh, Old Point Bar in Algiers at one time where a lot of the, uh, they would have a jam there. I remember what they called that thing, but I remember uh, Brian Seeger, mm-hmm. right, to take part in it. Johnny V would be over there. All these uh, serious musicians that you could just go and watch them right in their face. There was even what's cool about the Old Point was that the stage had some stairs that led up to a back room with a pool table, and you could kind of sit behind the band. And look at it from where they were looking and kind of feel it. If I was a kid, you know, like you go to these places. Things are not this way anymore. Where you could go as a youngster and just, as long as you had a guitar, they let you get in. And because if you didn't try to abuse the drinking, you know. Uh, and that, you know, that's, a, that's another thing that we have that they don't have anywhere else. Let me ask you this. What is on a, uh, on a broader level, what is something that uh, you believe to be true? Something you believe to be true that... Uh, most people think it's crazy, or most people just don't believe. Well, I think there's like, I'm a. I think there's things that I'd, I'd like to think could be true, or more, I'd like to think, I'd like to think they were true, because it really doesn't matter whether they're true or not. Uh, and uh, actually, yesterday I read this science blog, and it totally just screwed up those beliefs. A guy just sent me this. I'm going to try to set this up for these people. So I got a a message from you that said, all of my beliefs in life have been shattered and burned to the ground. Sort of. And then I looked at this thing, and it said that um, what they used to believe is that in quantum physics, that because there were some things that were symmetrically, that were chronologically symmetrical, that on the quantum level, perhaps time would operate in both directions. Uh, whereas we know here on the level that we interact on it that it goes in the one forward direction through time. So the thing that they discovered, the article, it said that no, no, there the symmet- symmetry in, uh, means nothing. It is time is does not go backwards even on the quantum level. That's a very subtle distinction that they made. It seemed like to have destroyed all of your beliefs. Well, not all my beliefs, because all my beliefs that you know. Most of what I believe is stuff that is, uh, more practical, more practical and proven to be true, you know, or, or, you know, at least mathematically proven to be true. But I used to, I, I, I've had this kind of thought in my head throughout my whole life that we could send ourselves messages back from the future to our past selves. And we only know this because we just keep living our lives over and over and over again. But if what they say about, uh, time being an arrow and not a river is true, then it really doesn't matter. And it really doesn't matter anyway, because in this moment, we're just, you know, living, living our, our, our life the best we can. You're saying that the, rather than time being this long thing where you, uh, you're saying there's like a, not a rebirth, but like a groundhog day. Uh, yeah, kind of a groundhog day. But I think within that groundhog day, there's, it's like the time ahead of you is still fuzzy. So even though you've lived this life, there's still options to live that same life, but different. Well, and you, right. and you, and you get those clues from yourself, probably from the future, from the previous life. Now, really, I, it, this is probably, this is most likely not true at all, but I just like to think of that concept. The other thing that I believe is not true, but I'd like to believe is true is that we in this moment are not really 
in the moment. We're already dead, and our lives that we're living are just a reflection of the lives that we lived. You are, it's kind of like how you can observe, uh, you can only observe an electron either in its, you can either only tell where it's going or where it is, but not both. Mm-hmm. I feel like, what if you, what if that applies to your life? Like you, up until the moment of death, you're just going and going and have no, no idea where you are until that last moment. And that's when you're reflecting on everything. And so in this moment right now, we're dying. We're already, we're, we're, it's a, you know, but that, of course, that doesn't matter either because you still have to live here in this real world and make decisions. So these things that I don't really believe, but I think it'd be cool if they were kind of true, particularly about sending messages to yourself from the, from the past or from the future. I think that's, I think that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a, a fun concept. But of course, I, uh, I don't know if I've actually done it. But I feel like some things I've done in my past didn't make any sense at all until they revealed their truths many years later. And I, I was like, well, I wonder why I did that thing. And then when the results of why I did that thing make themselves known, it's like, I wonder, did I, did I tell myself to do that thing in the past? Hmm. That's interesting. Because there have been decisions where I'm like, why did I do that? That makes no sense in the moment. But then I'm glad I did whatever that was. I see. I can see that. But doesn't science now say also that uh, we, we pass on memories in our DNA from the past? So like you, maybe you have rather than that that little feeling is is rather just like the memory of all your ancestors kind of going through the same shit. I don't know about that. I mean, I know that you know based on your experiences and how you treat yourself, you can turn on certain like epigenetics is what they call it, where you you can turn on certain genes and then pass those on based on how, you know, you know, whether you, how you live your life, you know, how you treat yourself. Huh. Um, and that's actually, that's, that's something that, you know, I think is, that's, uh, that's, science, that's, that's like, that's not science fiction. That's something that's, uh, somewhat true is that the way you behave affects the genes that are turned on that you pass on. Um, but it's, I don't know, this whole thing about passing on memories, I don't know. I mean, I've heard anecdotal stories about that, but of course, I'm not a scientist. Antidotal. Anecdotal? Antidotal? You said it was antidotal. Antidotal. Oh, no, no. Cure you What's from the poison. No, I don't, no, it's not going to cure you. An- anecdotal. Anecdotal, that's what I meant. Um, so I think, uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's, so essentially, I don't really believe anything that most people don't believe that we consider crazy. It's just that uh, sometimes I have these thoughts of these concepts that seem like they could be true based on the experiences of my life. But, you know, I don't know. Like, some people believe in ghosts because they think they've seen ghosts. And so it's like, I don't know. They, that's their experience. My experience is that I've been sending myself messages from the future. Although I don't think, you know, I haven't received any lately. Or if I have, I don't know because I haven't done anything, you know. Where I'm like, why did I do that? Everything, all the decisions I make so far seem kind of reasonable. Well, also, right, they say the reptile brain is making your decisions. Some conscious. Uh, well, you, I think it's it, rationalizing. Yeah, yeah, I think you like you, there are decisions that you make that you, yeah, like your subconscious. Well, that's the thing. It's like, why is your subconscious making this decision? It's because it's like you're picking on something of the moment or you're picking on something from the future. 
But of course, or now we know. Being to you, <laughs> is the dog star serious? Have a computer that beams everybody that controls, like the Truman Show. It's possible. We can every time you something. try to do something that's outside of what you're supposed to be doing, it hits you with like anxiety or depression. Like, oh, I guess I'm just going to sit here. I don't know. Remember yeah. that when Truman tried to cross the water and he couldn't? Because yeah. he was like, oh, I can't cross the water. Just, you know, it was inexplicable to him. And he wanted it so bad, you know. Right? I don't, I, I don't feel like we're in the Truman Show, but who knows? I don't think we're in the Truman Show. Some people, some people, I mean, I guess theoretically it's possible. Well, the thing, I guess that's one thing I'm not sure if everybody, uh, believes to be true that you should have these options floating around in your brain at all. <laughs> That these are options, you know, that, uh, I think, uh, some of the problems that we have a lot of times people fighting, arguing on things is that they have, like, they go, well, this is what I think it definitely is, which is a strange position, first of all. I don't know how anybody thinks anything definitely in any kind of way. But then, uh, you don't believe that, so that makes me upset. And it only makes you upset because partially maybe you go, like, well, maybe what I thought is wrong. But if you already think, like, maybe what I think is wrong, which we should all be thinking, because we're not all right. If we were all right, we'd be doing something a lot better than this stuff, you know what I mean? The world obviously needs some paint. Right. So, uh, you know, we think about we, uh, whatever I was talking about before. Yes, sir. So let's move on to another question. So, because not, what? Are we, the, that whole, uh, mystery of this whole episode is how did we meet? Oh yeah, did you ever tell you wanted to No, so you tell me you I tell me how version. we met. You tell okay. me how we met. So I had a gig, uh it was, uh, it was myself and say it, it was every Wednesday at the Bank Street Bar in New Orleans, it was myself, yeah. Peter Meehan, uh Lehman Salmons, uh and uh Will played bass. But he had just been coming in for a minute, right? And, uh, Will Langford. Will Langford, okay. You know Will Langford? Yeah, I know Will. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a good baseball. And he, uh, he had played with Pete in Honeypot and some band before that I'd never even heard. Pete played in Honeypot? Yeah, Pete. Uh, Honeypot was a band back in the late 90s. Yeah, he's played the Dragons and all that. So, they, uh, they had a group. He came in and played bass with us and then Peter died. On Christmas. And then that guy who couldn't do Will, he couldn't do bass. Uh, he had another obligation. And it was just me and the drummer. And the drummer, we did that for a couple of weeks, and he was like, man, this stinks. Uh, I'm bailing on this. And he didn't want to. It was one of those. It's just, I was, I don't know how I was. This was a very difficult time. So then I started, I called up, when you were in Afro Skull, I had, it, towards the end of that, I was in this band called Jonas Rise, and it was also some college kids that were getting good gigs or whatever. So I go and play with those guys, and I call the drummer from them, and then uh, another band, Demorphodon. I don't know if anybody remembers that. They were a good band. I think that was a... They were a very good band, band but no one ever heard of them. Right, but that was a... But that was a heyday in New Orleans music where you really could... There was a lot of people going out and seeing music all the time. So you could go see Demorphodon, and they have a crowd in there. So... Um, they had that bass player was came to, I was filling that gig basically I had this weekly gig I had no idea to play oh, that was a bass player from Dimorphodon it was a bass player from Dimorphodon and John Robert uh, that guy's name was Will too the bass player I believe I didn't actually know that guy oh. uh, he got I don't know how I got that guy to come play I, with I think I actually sold him a bass a few years later 
Interesting guy. Yeah. Like, I, I'm pretty sure it was the same guy, and it turns out he was, like, doing a trad jazz gig on, like, Bourbon Street for a while. Ah. Anyway. He had an odd thing where he couldn't, like, he could play the first set, but he couldn't play the second right. set or something like that. So, when we were playing, I don't know if it was on the break or not, but you came in there, and uh, the drummer from Jonas Rising, Jay Robert, he recognized you. And he goes, oh, do you know that guy? I said, no. He goes, that guy's a really good bass player. I said, uh, let's see if he can play the next set. Because we didn't have anybody coming. It was going to be the two of us. And we really, at that point, I don't think we'd really been thinking about what was going to happen. You know? Yeah. So it's another example of, of what you're talking about. Well, a future song. Maybe look this up. <laughs> but, uh, so he went and asked you, and you didn't have any of your stuff with you because you were in there booking for Rabbit Ash Records. That's what it was. Ah, uh, uh, right. Oh, uh, okay. I was, I was trying to remember why. That's I thought funny. I thought Jay Roberts had invited me, but then you're right. I was in there booking for Rabbit Ash, I think. Yeah. So you had to go home and get your bass. And your amp and stuff. And then you came out and you played with us. And then I just, that's exactly how I remember meeting you. Okay. And that's, that's why I got confused when you said the, uh, but that's, yeah, I was in there booking a gig for them, I think. And then, uh. Well, maybe that's not when Lee quit because then he played with us. Yeah. He played, no, he played, yeah, I think maybe he just had to sub that out. And then, he um, at some point. I came back and I think regularly you were using, uh, Mike Burkhardt and Oregon. Mike Burkhardt and you started playing, playing with Oregon us. Bass. And I think, I just kept, in, I don't know if you ever invited me back, but I just kept inviting myself back. I just kept coming back every week because I really had no, no other gigs and you didn't seem to mind. And then, um, and then I, and then I, I guess Mike, uh, stopped doing it after a little while and it was just you, me and Lehman. And then we had, uh, Quinn for a while. Quinlan. Quinn Kirchner, uh, for, and I think, like, I don't know if he and Lehman would switch off, but it was like, a, it basically became a trio, and that's, and then we played there every week for a good little while, and that's how it became in your band. Yeah, and that's the band that recorded the, uh, I Tell You What CD, What Would You Do, that I yeah. only have so many copies of left that I try to hide from people. <laughs> but, we, it was a good band. Yeah, it was fun. A little more raucous. I think a lot of the material, he's doing the Jerk Officers now, right? There's some of it? Some of it. Few of the tunes, yeah. Last episode, uh, we we uh, we recorded that thing all in one day. Yeah, nineteen so, songs, one day, um, amazing. Yeah. And all the mics were set up wrong. <laughs> all right. the mics were set up wrong. But we had a, we had a product. We did it. There's that that points to a lot of things about being a musician. It seems to be standard if you go against enough of a talk to the the guys. You know, uh, going to a gig where you were not invited. And being persistent about it, like just or because uh, yeah, a, I, I don't remember what the thing was that we were trying to. It figure takes out. a little bit of like naivety, you know, just to like do something that an experienced guy wouldn't do, but for some reason it just kind of works because you just. Well, if you would, you're not too annoying, but you're annoying enough, I guess. If you would listen to that audiobook that I gave you, Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art, you will hear that is he says your main uh helper is is being naive and stubborn and all these things. If you think about it for two seconds, you know, making a record and trying to get anywhere with it seems like a really stupid thing to oh, do. Oh, it's a terrible idea. But uh <laughs> you know you know, the thing I just always tell myself is like, well if I don't do it then somebody else is gonna do it and then I'll be aggravated that I didn't do it. Right. So you gotta let that let that let regret guide you. Yeah, yeah. Whatever drives you have to have something that drives you. 
Because if you're complacent, then you'll end up with a career that you're not necessarily happy with. Or even if you don't end up with a great career, at least you try. <laughs> but if you never try, look, at you can find you can find a steady gig, and it'll keep you well employed, and and you won't have, and it'll be relatively low stress, and you really won't have to worry about where your next dollar's coming from, and you know you'll establish yourself in a place, and you can play there for thirty years, and then you turn around, and it's like you realize you just kind of that there's nothing wrong with that. Like you've had a, a good career, but it may not be the one that you wanted. Maybe maybe you wanted to be more of an artist. I know guys. That's what they want to do. It's like they want to just find that steady gig and do that. And that's great. That's well, not a lot of situations, they might, you say, well, I'm a musician and I want to do something that's really goofy that nobody else really wants to listen to. Yeah. I need to find a way to do that. So you go do these other things that pays for that. And then you get this thing. And if you can have a small amount of people who really like what you did, and most people don't like it, but there are some people who do like it, then you did something good. Uh, need even if you just like it. Yeah. And you did it. Uh, you only need like a really tiny percentage of the population that like your music to to be satisfied with the you know to to feel like you've accomplished something you know even if you can only get like a hundred fans that, that really love everything you do to me that would be just as satisfying as you know having ten thousand fans that like what you do like pretty good you see I would find having the hundred fans frustrating because I would feel like if there's 8 billion people in the world, <laughs> it can't be possible that only 100 out of 8 billion people. Well, you didn't. I would feel like I didn't have enough reach. I go, I got it. There must be another 100 people somewhere to match these, and another 100 to match those, and 100. I guess it depends if you're complacent with 100 fans or if you want a million fans. And I guess that, that, that'll determine how hard you're going to work. Well, you could save all your money for a rainy day, or you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. That's true. So it's, it's really just a choice between. You know, and maybe have a balance. Try to have a balance. Balance. But what do we know? Yeah. All we know is we're doing it right now. You just, yeah, everyone's, everyone's doing it and they're all doing it in their own way. And, uh, everyone's got their own, um, their own, their own interpretation of, the, of success. And some people base it on, uh, you know, on other people's success. Some people just, like, if I compare my career to other more, you know, maybe more worldly bass players, I might not think too highly of myself, but I would, if I look at myself from just like what I wanted out of life as a young man, I'm living the dream right now. Oh, know? yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I, yeah, I could probably use more money, but, uh, I mean, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm happy doing what I do. And if it more, and if, and if, and if more success and money comes out of it, great. If not, then at least I'll have have uh, art. And I think you have things that you could trade for money. I think the real difficulty is for people when you get in a spot, and there are a lot of people in that spot where they go like, "Well, I, you know, I have no free time, I have no hobby, and no joy, and I work, and I don't have any. I, I can't trade any of these things for money or for free time. I can't like I don't, you know. So to be able to have, like, when I was a kid, I wanted to draw comic books. You know, you go, yeah, because you just draw comic books, and then you go, like, well, what are you going to do at 14 hours a day? You don't do anything else, and would you really do love it that much? You say, well, I don't know if I do. But then, if you find something you do love that much, you're very lucky. Mm -hmm. And then if it affords you uh, an opportunity. Some people work, right? And they have a hobby, a very satisfying hobby, and that's how they choose to do it. And it's, I think it, to separate your artistic goals from your uh, financial goals can be... Uh, a great thing. Oh, yeah. You know? 
I'm sometimes, you know, not envious. Sometimes I just kind of, like, think it's nice to have something that makes you really financially secure. You don't have to worry about too much, but then you're still able to do something that really satisfies you. And that, to me, is also, I, I, you know, I have plenty of friends who live like that. And uh, that's also a great thing, you know. I guess we we just choose. I'm in a situation where I don't need too much money, no kids or whatever, so easy peasy. Let me ask you this podcast question, all okay? Right. I've got a list here of podcasts, but there's only one there. All right. It says, uh, if you could only put one thing, uh, what would it be that you would put on a sweet potato? On oh, a sweet potato? Yep. One thing. Yeah. That's a tricky question, because I like my sweet potatoes by themselves. I guess I would put a little, like, a, do I, can I, do I have the option of frying the sweet potato? I'm going to say this is a baked sweet potato. It's baked for a delicious hour and ten or whatever, and it is perfect, but you, you're allowed to put one thing... I am no culinary expert. Maybe this is more self-serving. You know, it, the the one time I have sweet potatoes that that I generally have it would be at Thanksgiving, and if I was going to have it with anything, it would be with like the food that's on the plate next to it. So if I had to choose a thing for a sweet potato, it would probably be some like cranberry. cranberry <laughs> Your sauce. answer is going to be the food from the plate. <laughs> the food from the plate that's around the sweet potato. Maybe or like a good or a good uh, good dressing. Good Before. Stuff. Or dressing, whatever. Dressing? Not like, you know, like a... Stuffing. Stuffing. Well, no. Well, aren't you from... I thought Not people ranch. in the South call it dressing. I call it stuffing, but I'm a Yankee. I don't need any... I think that stuff's gross. I don't call it nothing. What, uh... You were going to say nothing, though, right? I was probably going to say pretty much nothing, I think. Yeah, I Your first I choice, nothing on a sweet potato? Nothing. On Correct food. answer is nothing. Nothing. Correct answer is nothing. That's amazing. You made me talk all that for just... Because I, I, my original <laughs> answer was nothing. I, I saw, But you didn't say it. You... You backed off and you went scientific. Well, I guess I have, st- technically, you said one thing. One thing. So nothing. Nothing. That's not one thing. It's a trick question, but... That's zero things. Watch how many people don't know the answer, even though I said it already on the first podcast. I didn't know there was a correct answer to that. Yeah, well, I, I'm actually looking, what it is for me is I I, I go nothing, but then I, there's, I will sometimes like some cinnamon sugar. You ever try that? On a sweet potato? Or not cinnamon sugar, what do you call it? Oh, that would be good, though. Brown sugar, like what a baking person would use, brown sugar. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, you mix that in there. Sweet potato. But yeah, and to me, it's yeah, you're getting, you're doing something wrong to yourself if you can't eat a sweet potato without adding something to it because it's so good on its own. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, what if the apocalypse comes and you have access to all these sweet potatoes and you wouldn't be content because you didn't have any ranch dressing or whatever you right. Oh, you weren't talking about that type of dressing. No, no. I couldn't get out of my head, though. No, no, no. Like, like, you know, like stuffing. Stuffing. Dressing that dresses a turkey or whatever. If you're talking about... Now, look, hold on. Hold on. If stuffing and about, dressing are the same thing. you're talking about thing. Thanksgiving sweet potato, though, somebody gave you a sweet potato and furl, or it's you're talking about sweet potato that's already been mixed with a bunch of shit. No, no, no. The, sugar, sweet guy. potato be by itself. Like, sir. With the skin? With the skin on, maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe it might be like a plop... Some but people put plop, marshmallows in there. That's what I was going to say. If you ate the marshmallows thing, then that's probably already been mixed with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like when I make that, that's uh-huh. got 
I mean, I've had some of that. Yeah. Molasses. Put some sugar in there. Right. Put some cane syrup in there. Right. You're going to want to put just anything you can find as sugar. I guess. Yeah, I've never made it, but that's definitely sweeter than just a regular sweet potato. That stuff's But if you just gave me a sweet potato and furl, then I would probably just, you know, put a little of the other food If you want to tune in. (laughs) you want to tune in, uh... We'll be do, we'll be showing you how to make a sweet potato on YouTube later. <laughs> and what else was I going to say to you about the thing? Here you go on the podcast, asking the questions. Oh, you want to do a word association? All right. This is going to be tricky now. I'm not great at this. I've never done it before. I have to edit it out. So you say a word and I say a word. And then I have to say a damn word. But then it can't, like, you know, don't go racist right away. It's basically the trying to go racist. You know, you ever saw that on SNL? <laughs> it was like, oh no. I want to say it was Dan Aykroyd and uh, Eddie Murphy. No? Is that right? He's got, you know. Who was it? Anyway, how embarrassing that I knew who it was. Alright, let's, let me think. Okay. Okay. Okay, here we go. Jazz. Rock. Show. Motor. Boom. Mini. Pennies. Any. Friend. France. You gotta go faster. You I know, I, I, there's so actually slowly. nothing in my head right now. France. <laughs> Spain. Spain. Spin. Puke. <laughs> Some jerk offs. I put the thing on style. Uh, okay, we got, so you're on puke? Yeah. Okay, uh, okay, puke. Duke. King. Crown. Head. Noggin. Ear. Ear? Alright, well that ends word association. <laughs> it's on an again. Terrible. Alright, here we go. Anything <laughs> oh, not to anything. Yeah. Uh, that shit out. Let's try another one. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know where we're going with this. I don't know. I thought it would lead to just a, uh, something, something unexpected. I did. It's part of the, part of the goal. Uh, so let me, so did you already tell me a, a great experience you had, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, of, I was like, great and embarrassing. I was supposed to ask, you told me an embarrassing thing that turned out to be great, but you were saying, uh, you didn't, that you were talking about, oh, I didn't have one particular time that you felt like you really rang the bell, like Rocky at the top of the steps, but it was like, you had little ones. I've just had a bunch of those little moments. I don't know if I've had a huge moment yet. So those little moments, though, you're talking about a moment where you, where you, you feel like, I am, I should, my future self was right to tell me to be a musician and to, not give up and to yeah. not do something else. Yeah. This is a rewarding thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like that, you know, I get that feeling, I feel like, at least once a week. I mean, I get like, you know, I mean, I generally enjoy what I do, but like, as far as like, something that feels really good, you know, I, I, I don't know, I guess it depends what, what we're looking at. You know, sometimes it's just a good feeling from the music itself. Sometimes it's like a feeling from a, a good crowd 
Well, um, people sometimes think, I think... And I don't know what else you really... I don't. If you find something you love to do, that it's always going to be fun and happy. But It should be. Or most of the time. I mean, obviously, you can't... If it's not... It can't be all the time. It then be. it gets to be boring. So, it, I mean... But it well, has to yeah, be... You want, like, ups and downs, but you don't want... <laughs> you don't want to go too far down. Or if you do, you want that to be just once where you can be like, okay, I never want to go that far down again. But generally, if you're doing something you love every day, it should kind of can be like... You should you should range from like I'm pretty happy to like really happy, but you should never really go below that pretty happy. Line. But to, that's because you have to be able to recognize as do gratitude and so forth, right? But do you have times when you consider when the opposite? You're like, okay, this these are my good moments. We also have those times where you go like you have a gig and you leave the gig or during the gig and you go like, God damn it, I don't know why I even do this. Uh, not, I've never had the moment feeling like, I don't know why I play music, like, why am I playing music? But I do have gigs where it's like, okay, why am I doing this gig? This gig. And, and then it's like, well, and then at that point it's like, well, is there a way to get out of this gig or do I really want to get out of this gig? Because maybe there's some things in that gig that you enjoy, but you just have like a particularly bad moment. And then, um, but then you realize why you're playing with that, why you're doing that gig in the first place. And there are now, you know, but there are situations where it's like you're constantly, at least for, for me, I'm constantly trying to make my career a little better each time. So it's like it's 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 pretty good right now, but I know there's ways to make it a little better. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that without like completely sabotaging myself and pissing people off and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because, you get, you know, you can't just quit a gig. Uh without a replacement unless you're financially prepared to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily ready to do that. Without a replacement for that gig. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just, you know, if I'm working four days a week somewhere and I decide I only want to work there two days a week, uh, I'm not going to give up those two days a week without something to replace it. It's just kind of like any other job, but, uh, but I will find ways. Maybe I can, maybe I can get a gig where I can sub out, that gig once in a while and then maybe that'll lead to subbing out more and now over time you can replace one gig with another one Mm -hmm. um but you know there are people who will just not play gigs that they don't want to play at all regardless of the financial consequences and you know you just learn to live with less money you know if if, if that's the way you choose for me i personally like to you know live at a certain level of uh you know standard living and so i have to i have to work accordingly. What about the investment of people, uh, you talk about giving up a gig, but you put time in on the gig or the people put time in on you, right? They go like, well, I work with this guy for a while and this guy's going to say, all right, well, I'm not doing this anymore. Happens all the time. Right. Uh, how do you handle that as a, as a guy who's a working? I mean, if I'm, if someone decides to replace me with someone else, or, or if you decide you don't want to work with somebody anymore, mm-hmm. or just the fact that you have, uh, let's say you have four different bands and you rehearse with all the bands, mm-hmm. right? And you're rehearsing with Russell every week, mm-hmm. and then you uh, rehearse with Colin Lake, yeah. right? And then the suspects want you to go on the road and do a thing, so you got to do some rehearsals with them. Well, so you learn all those things, right? right? You learn all those things, and then a date comes up in in the middle of it all. That they all three want you to play, 
and the one guy calls you first, another guy calls you 20 minutes later, another guy calls you five minutes after that. Like, hey, look, I, can you come do this thing? And you know that you, you're not doing wrong by anybody by going to their rehearsals. They all want you to play, they all have it set up. You, you're learning everybody's songs, but you're also the guy they're, their first call guy. They would be most comfortable if you could make the gig. So if you take the one gig, then you know those other two guys are going to have to get somebody else who doesn't know the stuff as well, who hasn't been work, worked in as much as you have. Well, eventually, if you do that enough, you'll be replaced. Was, as a matter of fact, last year, at this time, I was in three more bands than I'm in now. And I'm not in three of those bands because I scheduled myself out of them. You know, I had to, too many conflicts. Uh, and so now I'm in uh, three less bands. And and eventually, you know, it's like, I'll sub it out, so they'll get a sub. Maybe they're not as comfortable with them. But the second time I sub it out, they're more comfortable with the sub. By the third or fourth time, maybe they're considering that I am too busy to be in their band. That's why I'm not in the Wild Magnolias, playing with Monk Boudreau, playing with Chava. I was just too busy. Um, and also, as a, as a side man, you have to decide, are you going to just take the first gig that's offered to you, or do you have certain bands that you want to make sure you're there all the time? And so you set up, you know, you say, okay, stand by, let me check with this guy. And, uh, you know, it just depends on, on, on where you're at in your career. Um, there was a period of time where I'll just take whatever was offered to me first, I would, I would take that. And now I have to kind of consider future ramifications of, of those decisions. You ever took like three gigs at, for the same day and then asked two of the guys for an advance and then <laughs> only show up to the one gig and then at the end of the thing just go hide out in the motel? Uh, I hear about no, definitely not. If I did, I don't think I'd be a working musician right now. I've, 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 I don't think I've ever double booked myself. I think, I think I double booked myself once in my life and it was just a, a mistake on my part and fortunately the mistake was realized like a week before the gig. But I've never just, you know, I've never <laughs> done anything like that. Although I think it would be cool if, like, if I could, like, treat myself like like a dentist treats his career. Like, you know, you go to the dentist, and the dental tech works on you for, like, 99% of the time. And the dentist comes out, takes one look, and shakes your hand, and that's it. And that would be cool if, like, if I could take three gigs at once, and just hire a sub for each one, and then show up for the last song. And collect half the pay, you know, and take all the credit to each of those gigs. That is, that's like the dentist approach to playing music. You know, it's actually kind of like, I, I did a gig where a guy, not a gig, uh, I went to the fucking dentist, right? I got a dentist <laughs> and the guy, he, he, he says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell you about what's going on with your tooth there. He looks at my face for three seconds. And he puts a DVD player on my chest and he leaves the room and turns out the light. And they showed me a movie on my chest and it was about four different things. He says, yours is the second one, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so then the thing is over, he comes back in, he says, uh, alright, now you know all about the thing, I got a lady who's gonna come in here, this receptionist lady, she's gonna come in here and talk to you about your payment options. Mm -hmm. She comes in there, she has a sheet of paper, and it has a number on there, she points it, and she goes, it's gonna be $800. <laughs> I thought it was going to be options. You just told me how much it was going to, supposed to cost. Oh, no. I never went and got that done. But uh, <laughs> it healed itself. Actually, you know, I can't tell that story on the podcast, but the, a dentist told me something sarcastically. He mm -hmm. goes, unless you want to uh, take a hook and scrape that out every night, then you're going to have to do this. And I was like, all right, I'll scrape that shit out every night. 
he did not really mean that I should be doing that. So, anyway, I don't hold it against him. I don't think doctors should be sarcastic. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, because not everyone understands sarcasm. And he, I don't... And then they, and sometimes don't, and sometimes people don't, uh, you know, present it correctly. Right, he had that type of face. Yeah. He had that type of face where he's, like, he would smile at you, you know, while he's, his sarcasm would, uh, so anyway, in the end, we cleared that up. Uh, and I didn't, I never went back to that one guy with the DVD player. But, what I was gonna say is that it's, it's actually like that if you can get to that level where people, they, uh, hear your music on some, thing on a show or on a CD or something on the internet and they like it and then that's the part where the guy puts the DVD player in your chest and then uh, the part where you show up and just do a show in that town but people give you like some crazy amount of money for an hour's worth of music uh, you know like Bruce Springsteen gets or whatever then uh, you're talking about what the dent you know the payoff the payoff at the end right the nurse is the uh, all the people who do the actual work of loading up the amps on stage, EQing the sound, make sure you sound good. I mean, he's I, mean I guess the dentist put in his time in, in, in dental school and whatnot. And, you know, getting a practice off the ground is a risky thing. And any dentists out there at all, I'm not trying to disparage any dentists. Oh, no, no, they're great. I go to my dentist every six months. I do not go to the dentist, but I need to. I have this sensitive spot. You should go to the dentist. Well, you know, last, tech, do you, you know, last time I had it, he said it was just, uh, you know, get this toothpaste because it's, uh, it's, anyway, I got the toothpaste. It's got sensitive again. So I, you know, just hope to do it. I don't personally like the dentist. Someone no one likes the dentist, but you just gotta, it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to go to the dentist after not going for four years because it's worse. It's worse. You, you, you just want to get in the habit of just, because now if you do do it to dentists, at least the one I go to is when I'm there. They schedule my next appointment immediately. So mm-hmm. it's already in my calendar. So I, you know. That's so smart. So, I mean, I haven't been to a doctor in probably over five years because I, it's not in my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I feel okay, you know, but I'm turning 40 next year. So maybe I should, you know, get, get, a, get a look at. But, but, uh. I can't wait to talk to some of these irresponsible musicians. Oh yeah, no, but, no, dude, and don't do any of these things. Musicians got it. Okay, here's some. I'm just while we're talking about musicians need to do a couple things. They need to dentist. They need to go to the dentist. They need to take care of themselves if they want to have like any sort of longevity. But more importantly, it's like you need to consider the fact that you may not want to be playing music until you're 100 years old, and so. It's good if you're making. Now you get better. If you're making, that's true. I mean, no, I, I definitely would love to play music until I'm 100 years old, but I don't want to have to rely on it. You know, well, I'm 100 years old. I'm going to play one note. Make everybody <laughs> clap. Watch. But people, but musicians that are working that have like some sort of income, like steady, or you know, that are are making a living doing it, should should consider like retirement investing and stuff like that. And it's. Because I've seen, I I have too many colleagues oh, that are like uh, that are did you twenty years time? away from when they should be retiring and have no plans for ever stopping and are just going to play until they die on stage. Like me and you, and that's great. But I mean, it wouldn't be nice to just actually, you know, no, you're right. not have to work for you know for for when you're older. And uh, I think it's funny that you took my comment about uh, 
talking to less responsible musicians, the up the ante. Well, like, no, it's the point because I it, I it makes me think it's something that concerns me like genuinely. I like these are my friends. It upsets you. They, yeah, these are my friends, and it's like yeah, I, mean, I, I do? don't want to see them like out on the street one day because they can't physically work anymore, and they have no. It's this is like this is this is a serious part of the show, <laughs> but no, it's seriously, not it's like not funny. But you should, you know, consider saving for the future. That's my advice. No, it's true. I have friends like that too, where you go, like this guy's like, well, he's in the same boat as me, but he's got some years on me. Yeah, he's sixty years old or whatever, and it's like, what do you, you know, what happens when your tongue doesn't your tongue, tongue stop working when you're like seventy five or something like that? You can't play it. You know, it's sad. I don't, you know, you don't want to see music become. It's already to some degree a thing, right? You got to be privileged to be able to get your hands on an instrument to some degree and you have time to practice it. But it's not like NASCAR where you have to have like a you know one point five million dollars just to buy the outfit. So. <laughs> It, you know, you can go buy a cheap guitar and get on stage somewhere, and that's always, that's cool. Yeah. Still. But it is getting, it's harder to get parody in this industry. Like in sports, you know, you have to, um, especially if you're coming from a, a, a situation of nothing. Some guys do it, you know, and other guys have, you know, obviously you know, some guys are born, their dad was a great quarterback, and other guys, dad, dad was uh, not a quarterback at all. And as, you know, there's no, there's no one, one way, right? You find a way, you make a way. Yeah. Just, you just, whatever it is, you just gotta put in the hours. That's all. Just gotta put in the time and take the chances. Do you have a practice regimen that you follow? Uh, I try. Since I play so many, so much, um, it's not as disciplined as it should be, but I try to practice, uh, a little bit every night. I, I practice, even though I don't gig on upright bass, I practice upright, try to practice upright bass. Lately, I've been just trying to concentrate on writing. But my, in general, I just try to make it a point to get to my music room at some point, uh, at least, you know, at least a few days a week. And well, let me ask you this. On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. Uh, you, you have a Bourbon Street gig. Yeah. It's how many hours? It's five. five. It's four and a half hours of actual stage time. It's a five hour gig. So if you're playing for four and a half hours already, that's, you still have three and a half hours left over rehearsal time to get eight hours of playing in a day. Yeah. It, yeah. If I, but the, you know, most people who work eight hours aren't really working eight hours. So working, you know, five hours or so. So I try to, I try to I'm go back. I'm on the Tim Green thing that I heard where they said that you said you should practice eight hours a day. Oh, I thought that was Jimbo Walsh that told you that. But maybe it was. You no, I mean, trust everything that Jimbo no, Walsh well, has ever look said. Look at Tim. Tim Green was a world class. Like that's right. He was. That's and, right. And if you want to be a world class guy, you got to practice eight hours a day. You know, I you know whether or not you're gigging. Like I, you know, if I really wanted to, I should. You know, get home from my four and a half hours of playing. You know, maybe eat some food, drink some coffee. Or whatever, and then go practice for eight hours, and then maybe I won't be necessarily have to do. Maybe I can move on to better gigs in my four-day day. But then you know what? Then I forget about the rest of my. I I personally enjoy spending time with my wife and just relaxing with her and thinking about other things behind besides music. And I'm not really concerned about being you know being a world-class bass soloist. Or anything like that, um, but I do put in the time because I want to, you know, I want to improve as much as I can within <laughs> within reason. I mean, I if I put in, I will get physically sick from putting in too much practice time. That's just that that's what happens to me when I decide to like 
play five hours a day and then go shed for another four hours and repeat and repeat and repeat. It actually just wears down my body to the point where I just don't want to do anything more. So I have to find what works for you. Some guys are obsessed with music. Like some guys don't want to do anything with music, but music. And that's great. That's not me. I like to play music. I like to write music, but I like to enjoy life itself other than music. It's not everything to me, but it's how I, it's how I survive. That makes me think of two things. On the one hand, if, uh, you know, if the Saints had to play six nights a week, they would never practice because they'd be beat up all the time. And right. there's a physical component to what you're doing, right? Um, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to motivate after you've been playing music all day and want to do it again later that day. <laughs> but then the other thing that you say about even if you did, uh, and I am an advocate for, for practicing, mm-hmm. you know, and playing a lot. I think that you can, uh, there's a lot of ways to, to work music into what you're doing throughout your day, which I know you do. But, uh, if you were like, if you were a great coder on the computer and you, you sat there hunched over your computer doing, people would say, well, every 45 minutes you need to get up and walk around and stretch. Or, uh, and if you were going to make a video game while you're doing that, then you would be basing it on everything that you had experienced up until that point that you stopped thinking about anything else but that. So if you still write songs and you still want to communicate to people, uh, on a human level, besides like check out how great I am at my instrument, then you need to have experiences that other people are having, right? You know, and if you don't, nobody wants to hear a song about uh, I spent this many hours in the studio today tracking this one part <laughs> just to get it just right, you know. Right. Maybe one line, maybe like half a line in a rap song, right? You know about how great you are. I always find it weird when a rock song becomes popular. That is about being a rock star. Because it doesn't relate to people, to, like, like I, you know, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a good song. Like uh, Bob Seger's "Turn the Page" is a great example. It's about being on the road. It's an example. That's that it sucks, though, isn't it? Huh? That's the song about but being on the road sucks. Well, it just it talks about how it's just kind of this endless. It, it's 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 not as easy. It's 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 just rough. It's kind of like basically just repetitive and boring. But maybe people can relate to it because here's sax, this guy who's a rock star, but he's living the same sort of like day to day humdrum life essentially that these other people are. But he's really not because he's fucking Bob Seger and he's rich and famous and he's probably a lot happier than most people. But that being said, it's like I, I'm just like I'm I I play that song and I sing that song on Bourbon Street often, and mm-hmm. it gets requested at least twice a week, you know. And so I'm just I'm surprised when a song that uh, doesn't seem to relate to the normal person's life becomes famous, but or becomes popular. But like I said, that song could be interpreted as just a, a working man, you know, no matter what the situation they're in. Just it speaks to people's feelings of isolation yeah. associated with their their job, you know. And a lot, true. Of, a lot of people on Bourbon so Street are totally traveling. Wrong. A lot of people on Bourbon Street are traveling. Yeah. The other thing I always thought they like when I look, if I listen to Jay Z, as you well know, mm-hmm. and uh, I always think it's interesting because I listen to that and I'll be like. Yeah, you know, that would be, I should try to get a Mercedes. <laughs> I should start trying to get a Lexus or something, because I'm thinking, listen to this music, he's like, yeah, nice shoes is the thing, and then having a really great car would be awesome, and I'd be like, wow, that shit sounds great. Yeah, like, maybe I should hustle hard, fly until I die, and so forth, you know, like, yeah, I don't, <laughs> it, he, he paints a very, uh, a picture that, even though I haven't experienced it, it, it's, it makes sense. And it, you can see it, it, uh, it might be cathartic in some way. Um, 
And of course, if you keep listening, then you talk about how, you know, like, talking about how all I have, you know, say I, I have all this money and all I have is like some cars that I don't drive and some, you know, extra house bills I gotta pay and stuff and just nothing. I was, say, happier when he was, uh, angry and broke, you know, and, and, and hungry for stuff, struggling. Well, the music's definitely, I mean, most bands, their best stuff is like in the early stages when they're, raw and hungry and then it then you know then it becomes like basically trying to force albums out you know and i always think about that like when pearl jam they were so angsty for so many records and then they're like sitting around with these turtleneck sweaters and a real nice chai rope roibus tea you know, <laughs> just sitting there in this like wonderful living room and they're like so what are we gonna do on the next record what should we it becomes harder to relate like rock stars if they become successful should just like give all their money away and just <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a boxer, like a, a lot of famous boxers, uh, fighters, you know, have been known to, to spend their money. Right. So I can't go back and fight a guy when I have all this money. I wouldn't have any motivation. I got to get rid of this money and then go fight the guy. Get another. <laughs> do they do that? So, so they can have motivation by, you know, they do it because they're bad with money. It's a combination of things. It's like a whole methodology that you, know, you wouldn't obviously do it, but that those guys, that's how it's like, uh, they can't be in the middle. Mm-hmm. They have to have everything. And then if you have everything, that means like, well, I have everything. Give me the nice champagne. Give me all this stuff. And then when you spend everything, then you don't have anything anymore. And he goes, well, I have nothing. He knows how to do that. He knows how to have everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see the thing about people that can't win the lottery and hold on to it. Uh, and also people who get to the point of uh, what they want with their success and they don't and they balk or they, they uh, sabotage themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a funny thing about the human person. It goes back to your, the dog star serious controlling your thoughts. And what makes a person so at odds with themselves? But that you could be a person and you want to, um, people, uh, sabotage themselves because with fear, you imagine, like, you're going to go play a show, right? And you go, Oh my God, I hope I don't get scared. I hope my hands don't get clammy. I don't choke. I hope people don't laugh at me. I hope you're hoping. Your anxious feelings are making you imagine all what you don't want to happen. And if you were to go up there and feel great and everybody cheer for you and not be nervous, then you'd be very surprised by what happened. Right. Because you weren't ready for that. Uh, and I know for myself, I was anxious so many times getting on stage. You have to talk to some artists who say like that they're still anxious every time they get on stage. But I was like really anxious a lot for a long time. I knew I wanted to do it. I kept doing it. But I kept being anxious. And at a certain point, I became more comfortable with it. But it was like, you shouldn't have to have that many gigs to get comfortable with it. You should realize that that's your place. That's where you are comfortable, uh, where you belong there. That's why you want to be there so bad is because you have a feeling deep down you belong there. And you have to take a conscious effort for some reason as a person, for most people, uh, to experience, to, to visualize and try to imagine the experience of what you actually want to happen, to combat all of your anxieties, visualizing what you don't want to happen over and over and over and over, and over again. And, uh, yeah, if I could find some sort of way to go back and take out that bit where I couldn't remember to say that, what I was <laughs> trying to say, that would be great. You can do that. I guess I'll do it digitally, but I don't really want to. You know, let this whole thing just roll. Just hearing the raw. That's what I was trying to do. What a lot of people do with their podcasts is they do like, especially the video ones, is they run live on YouTube and 
you stream and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll even go on. I'll look, I'll look up uh, like Joey Diaz or somebody, and he has odd hours that he does his at. So it'll say, oh, there he's streaming live now. Mm-hmm. Click on it, and you're watching the podcast. Oh, okay. So those ones don't get edited. Uh, I think I feel like I gotta edit out all the dead space. There's some boring things. parts, and there's also when you go, I go uh all the time. So I gotta figure out how to stop doing that while I talk. Well, when you right. go back and listen to it, you can fade out and then come back in and it just explain that whatever we're talking about was t- totally pointless and boring, or uh, whatever. I also, I if you watch uh, the first year of The Simpsons, <laughs> South Park. Seinfeld, any classic show or something like this, you know, those are for our generation classic. They were not good compared to what they, where they ended up. But they had to start somewhere. Yeah. And it's got to start somewhere, you know, uh, if, if you look at the problem just trying to figure out the answer, you're not going to get there as quickly as if you start messing with the problem. So, uh, Bill Richards, the inaugural podcast here. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to have you back. I hope so. Maybe have some uh, some three way action podcasts, four way action podcasts. Just as many people as we can fit in this room uh, who are cool enough to not talk over each other. But thank you for being here. Thanks for uh, having me. We'll see you guys next time. And all right, take it easy, people. Wait, wait, is that my t- catchphrase? Oh, I wrote it down. <laughs> Uh, here we go. What's your catchphrase? The way I'm going to open the thing, I'm going to say, all right, what's happening? And then the way I'm going to exit it, I'm going to say, all right, people, take it easy. <laughs>